Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. At a certain point in our lives, we lose control of what's happening to us. And our lives become controlled by fate. That's the world's greatest lie is a quote from The Alchemist, the best-selling novel by the renowned Brazilian author Paulo Coelho. I thought this quote is fitting for our guest today, an independent thinker, the author of three books, including the New York Times bestseller As One. He shares with us his journey from escaping persecution in Iran, partnering with economist and Nobel laureate Thomas Schelling at Harvard, advising the most senior executives across the globe, and to now instilling a sense of global citizenship to the next generation. Our guest is Murdad Bagai, Chairman of Alchemy Growth and the Global Chief Executive Officer of High Resolves. He was previously an Executive Director of the CSIRO and a partner at McKinsey & Company, where he co-led the firm's worldwide growth practice. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Murdad challenges us to think, throwing down the gauntlet, highlighting that what we are going through right now is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to reflect on the global nature of our biggest problems, to examine the behaviour we want to accept, and as citizens, business people, and political leaders, for us to merge with a maturity and selflessness that we don't have during periods of growth. An expert in helping organisations grow This is a conversation on both macro and micro levels, beyond natural boundaries, with powerful stories, insights to our possible future, and a very personal endeavor to create the citizens of tomorrow. So sit back and enjoy. This too shall pass. Murdad, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Murdad, there's an old saying, isn't there? This too shall pass. Well, what does that mean to you, Murdad, in this sort of state of, uh, of crisis? Well, there's no other way of looking at it, I think, right? Um, uh, no matter what you're looking at, uh, when you read the news uh, and uh, open your window, you're going to see a world in crisis. But whether it's the economic or the COVID-19 situation, they will pass. Um, it's just that there was a lot of damage that will be done before it does. I'd like to come back to that fairly soon, Murdoch, but I wouldn't mind getting a better understanding of Knowing a little bit about this, uh, this author that I got the opportunity to discuss, have a discussion with today, Murdad, you grew up in Iran, did you not? Yeah, I was born in Iran and uh, then left uh, when I was nine uh, and grew up in Canada. And faced, I would have thought, fairly severe fanaticism during those periods of time? Well, so, uh, you know, my family's Baha'i and it's a minority uh, in Iran and it's considered by some unclean and untouchable. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, would have been part of an outsider minority in Iran. And then I moved to really to Canada. My family moved to escape the persecution that was yeah. going on in Iran. Uh, and then the Iranian revolution happened. And suddenly in Canada, I was the Iranian terrorist. Oh, right. um, so even though, you know, we escaped it, it was difficult to, you know, be the uh, not be the outsider. And so we did what every good immigrant family does, which is focus on education. That was kind of the main reason to be in Canada is to get a great education and be part of a great society and, and uh, move forward that way. So that's going to be some part of the message, I guess, we're going to learn from today. So you've you've been facing some pretty tough times throughout your life. I think really, you know, not not as tough as some have it, but I think questions, you know, like one of the big questions in my life is why do people who are otherwise like good people believe really horrible ideologies and start hating other people? That's probably one of the defining questions of my life. And what, what, what does drive that hate? Well, I don't think they're born with it. You know, I think what happens is that uh, they get exposed to divisive, hateful messaging. They have vulnerabilities, whether it's they've hit a pothole in their personal life or something else has happened. Uh, and then they buy into, you know, some kind of ideology that's corrosive and, and ends up being destructive. And uh, so it happens all the time. And I think, you know, there are many leaders who take advantage of that. Uh, of that, um, if you want, um, firewall breach. Uh, and so uh, I think part of the challenge we have as society is how do we create a citizenry that is you know, capable of independent thinking, of seeing through uh, those types of messaging, thinking for themselves, not being swayed by fake news or, or other types of hate speech or things like that, and being able to think about how do you create an inclusive and just society. Yeah, but independent thinking also takes courage, doesn't it? It certainly does. Um, I don't think it's easy. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. But if you think about what happens in schools, how much time do we actually spend uh, educating young people on these kinds of competencies, like independent thinking, critical reasoning, uh, advocacy, storytelling, things like that? They're pretty important, I think, not just for the kind of society you want to have, but for the kind of economic future we want to have as well. It's also the uh, the toughest uh, part of your life in some cases, isn't it, the schoolyard? It certainly is. I mean, you look at um, well, we'll talk about some of the initiatives my wife and I have created, but yeah. you know, we get to see what happens in a lot of schoolyards. It is rough. It is a battleground. And you know, our kids are wounded. Um, they're the walking wounded if you look at some of the stuff they have to put up with. And so look, being able to uh, build the resilience to deal with that stuff, but to also be able to give them a sense that there are things they could do with it at the school level, working with um, teachers and principals and and think about the kind of culture they need to create in, in their school communities. That's, a, I think, a really important um, training ground for life uh, later. And so were you inspired when you were in Canada through the teachers, or was it mum and dad giving you the guiding principles? <laughs> I mean, certainly uh, my mum was a huge figure in my life, no doubt about it. Uh, she's almost 88. I still call her for advice all the time. Uh, and... Um, I think a lot of who I am goes back to what she taught me. But I think I had some really important mentors along the way as well. There were a lot of people who paid it forward. Uh, I had a law school professor who took me out to show me how to buy a suit and dress for going to work. I had uh, a professor who, uh, Tom Schelling, won the Nobel Prize. And we worked a lot on cooperation together. And I, I learned a huge amount about you know, a lot of things that shapes my uh, advice to companies. Uh, all my mentors at McKinsey throughout. So there's, there's just so much. So 
so much that I've learned over the years from uh, lots and lots of uh, people who were not afraid to pay it forward uh, with me. And how did the opportunity come to work with Thomas Schelling? So I was a student at Harvard at the Kennedy School, uh, and uh, I was looking to have to do a, a thesis, and I was thinking about what to work on. And I was really interested uh, in this whole question of, you know, how does cooperation evolve in large groups? How do you get collective action? And Tom had written a lot about that stuff, and, uh, and so he, advi- he became my advisor, and I created some really interesting games and simulations to put people in a position of having to choose of whether to work collectively or not. Uh, and, I, you know, we studied all that to see what happens, what do you need for collective action to emerge? Uh, and so it, it shaped my thinking a lot. I came back years later, you know, decades later to write a book called As One about collective action. Uh, but so much of that and so much of what we do in our not-for-profit work is, is based on the, the work I did with Tom uh, in the late 80s. And was the, was the collective action, I guess the genesis of this, actually from negative experience? I.e. the hate and the exposure that you had during those difficult days in Iran? Was that, was the, was that the sort of the, the precursor to it all? No, I mean, it was actually more like the positive. It's like, how do, you, how do you get a large percentage of society to act in the long-term collective interest? So one of the things we measured was, we, you know, it was the early days of behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. So people were measuring, do, are we sort of more biased towards cost or benefit, short-term or long-term, personal or collective? It turns out we're um, raised to be more sensitive to personal short-term cost. But if you look at any problem from climate change to the pandemic, you're actually asking people to act in the, in the collective benefit. Uh, and that's not what we're normally trained to do. But one of the things we discovered all those years ago was that when people played these simulations, which we were using for research, but when they played them, they actually changed uh, the way they thought about these things. And so I began to clue into how experiential learning can actually adjust people's, let's call it moral framework particularly getting people to act more in the long-term collective interest. And so a lot of what I started thinking about is how do you work with people, for example, in a COVID-19 situation, Mm -hmm. how do you get people to respect the rules uh, and keep a social distance instead of partying on Bondi Beach? You know, that is a collective action problem. Uh, And there's all kinds of things we can look at in terms of the messaging and the culture I mean, there are reasons why, for example, Japan, South Korea, and Germany are experiencing different curves to Italy, the U.S., and Australia. But we'll see where Australia ends up. But to some extent, our ability to act collectively is central to being able to do well with these large collective action problems like climate change or pandemics. And how important is the messaging then? What's where's your emphasis there? Look, message signaling, messaging is incredibly important. You know, and so one of the things we found is that. The, the more ambiguity there is in interpretation, yeah. uh, then the more you're actually allowing people not to do the right thing. The terminology that people use on this is bright line rules. Well, bright line rules mean no interpretation. So a word like essential, well, what does that mean? Mm. You know, you and I can have very different meanings here uh, with that word. But if you say no meanings more than two, well, that's a bright line rule. So the more I think the messaging is in the form of bright line um, rules, the more likely it is to be followed. Now, having said that, also the more a culture is collective oriented, the more likely it is that they'll follow any rule. So um, I think both factors are, are, are definitely at play. While we're on this topic, do you want to sort of expand on what we should be thinking and who's actually winning this battle? Well, look, it's hard to tell, right? Um, and I think one of the things that's 
interesting about this is the ethical um, literacy styles that are at play here. Mm -hmm. So in the early days, there was some people who were arguing in the UK and, and the Netherlands around this whole idea of let it just happen and we get the herd immunity idea. Yeah. Well, there was a questionable fact base around that. But the other thing that was interesting about it was that it was just cold-blooded utilitarian analysis, which I think is important. It's what we're all trained in. But you know, if the people that are dying are your relatives, then you might question whether or not that was a good policy. And I think one of the challenges we have here is balancing, if you want, the numbers with the soft side and really thinking about the people implications of what we're talking about. And uh, there was a meme going around about, look, you have it pretty easy. Uh, you know, your, your grandparents and their grandparents went off to war. Uh, you get to sit on a couch and watch Netflix. So we actually have to say, is our sacrifice compared to previous generations really that big an ask if it means that we flatten the curve and we protect many lives? So I think that's, a, that's one of the things that has been on display. I think the other thing that makes this a very difficult problem, which has led to some of the confusion, is balancing what you want to do in terms of COVID and health with what you want to do in terms of the economy. Yes. Okay. So people are conscious of the cost of an economic slowdown, both in terms of jobs, in terms of the debt that it creates, in terms of, you know, there are a whole host of social problems that increase when you have isolation. So, you know, you look at what happens in domestic violence, for example, it goes up. Yeah. Uh, because of that stuff. So people are aware of, uh, you know, some of the actions we might take with respect to COVID might actually be quite costly on the economic side. And that's, I think, one of the things the governments, both the, the Commonwealth and the state governments have been trying to balance and not necessarily agreeing on where you where you end up on those. And there isn't a clear answer. Uh, it is a trade off. But I think countries need to have very clear strategies and not um, Isol, you know, not waver too much back and forth. People need to understand what it is and move forward. I do have to say, Greg, that one of the things, I mean, I see how hard some of our leaders are working. Yeah. So Greg Hunt, for example, is an amazing minister of health. And I don't think the man is sleeping more than three, four hours a night. He's working his butt off to make these things happen. So this is in, I think we should be grateful that we have such amazing leaders. I think that the problem is so difficult. And so gnarly, such a difficult balance to hit that it's easy, particularly if leaders have different views, for there to be a lack of clarity. And if you have a lack of clarity, you're leaving the door open for the collective action not to happen uh, the way you want. And that's the problem. And collective action not to happen, does that mean what we freeze or we just unsure where to go next? What, what do you mean by that? I mean, like with respect to health, for example, if you don't have real clear rules, some people might not isolate the right way. You know, and uh, I think there are a lot of people who are unwittingly actually contributing to uh, putting other people in dangerous positions. You know, and then there are others who are doing it willingly. But I think I think if the rules were clear, people we would actually limit some of that. Same thing on the economics, though. You know, if you look at what's now happened with the generous stimulus package, there's now a big question for companies to say, are we going to do our share to protect jobs and make sure that the economy kind of you know doesn't go into a five-year freefall? So I think both of these things, what, what government has to do is do the right policies that get people to the right thing on COVID and the right thing with respect to not having the economic uh, damage be too severe. And so it's all, all the policies, all the rules. These are all the things, the signals that are required to coordinate activity at a societal level. And I think that's where we need to be super clear, super clear. And I don't think we are. Murdad, I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes because we want to cover off what, what your view is of leadership. 
But during your career, you moved into McKinsey's and I think had a an instrumental role in the whole growth play for McKinsey's and the, the I guess the strategy behind growth globally. Can you sort of talk us through your exposure and your experience? Look, it was a real privilege being at McKinsey for um, for a number of years. Uh, I became a partner in Canada, then moved to Australia. Uh, and for about four years, I was one of the co-leaders of the growth practice globally, uh, along with actually another Australian, David White, who's at Port Jackson now. Uh, and uh, and what we did is uh, around the mid-90s, growth work represented about 4% of McKinsey projects globally. Uh, and uh, we felt very important that, that it needed to be a bigger share. And so we created this special initiative to create a whole bunch of frameworks, tools, approaches that would help us do more growth work. Uh, and I think we grew it to almost, I think at its peak was about 28% of the firm's work globally. Uh, and some of those frameworks survived to today, like the Three Horizon framework, I think has helped a lot of CEOs and chairmen think about uh, growth strategies uh, in structured, disciplined ways. Mm-hmm. So it was a tremendous learning opportunity about you know just the issue of growth and growth strategy, but also just how to be structured, disciplined in your approach to problem solving. Where did that take you in regards to the exposure you had with CEOs and maybe your thoughts around what is actually leadership? So, well, you know, you, I was, I've been an advisor for, in one way or another for about 25 years, yep. but in between kind of been a CEO myself, which I think only increased my empathy. I think it's one thing to be a consultant. It makes a big difference to uh, actually go and run something yourself. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Alchemy Growth, the firm we've been building, mm-hmm. is that we have a lot of people who have actually been in the seat. I think it may it brings an empathy and a clarity to to a pragmatism to the way you you give advice. But I think look, my definition of leadership, you probably guess based on the name of the firm, Alchemy Growth, mm-hmm. is um, is around this turning of copper and lead to gold. You know, so I think leadership is getting ordinary people to do extraordinary things together, uh, and uh, that's part of I think what we try to do. I, I have heard another definition of leadership that I've always really liked as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Ronnie Heifetz and Marty Linsky, who are Kennedy School professors, they talk about leadership as disappointing your people at a rate they can tolerate. <laughs> and I like that. And I think that's not a bad way of thinking about it as well, because you know one of the easy things uh, as a leader is all the things that grow the pie, right? Make life better. And I think so many of the difficult choices are when you actually have to make trade-offs and sacrifice things. I think right now, with the COVID-19 and the economic slowdown, a lot of CEOs are finding themselves in a position where they have to make really tough choices and thinking about, you know, what is the rate at which I can disappoint my own people? Mm. Uh, and I think that is a test of leadership. You're also an author of a number of books. Do you want to maybe give us some insights and what you thought were the key, the key learnings that we should share to the audience today? Well, there's three books, really. That The first one was called The Alchemy of Growth. Yep. And uh, really, the core insight from that was this idea that if you want to have a growth-oriented organization, which is going to be an attractive place to work and recruit the best talent and create a lot of value for shareholders, you need to manage a pipeline of growth initiatives. And we introduced this whole framework called uh, The Three Horizons. And what we tried to do is get people to manage differently the activities they have in Horizon 1, which are around protecting and extending the core business from what they do in Horizon 2, which is to build the next growth engine, yep. and Horizon 3, which is generating options for, for the more distant future. Uh, that was quite a, um, I think, powerful framework, and it was adopted by a lot of CEOs, became a Harvard Business School case, uh, a number of other places. Yes. Um, the second book was called Granularity, and what it tried to do is 
um, a bit less on the framework side and a lot more on the analysis side. And what it tried to show is the importance of looking at your business and your market in a more granular way. So not thinking necessarily at a high level about what sector you're in and things like that, but really going down and thinking about the different parts of the sector, the geographies, the segments you've picked. And what we what we managed to show is that people who pick um, uh, go for high, uh, what we call micro share, high share in these micro uh, markets tend to do incredibly well in terms of shareholder return. Mm-hmm. And that has really influenced my advice with a lot of uh, CEOs in terms of the the level at which they analyze the performance of their company, but also the level at which they analyze growth opportunities in the marketplace. And that book was a New York top seller, wasn't it? I think all three were bestsellers, but the, the third book was the one that was the New York Times Wall Street Journal bestseller. It was called As One. Yes. And it was really a book about uh, what uh, CEOs and other leaders need to do to create collective action, to drive collective action. And it was in some ways me going back a couple of decades later to the work from, you know, with Tom Schelling and saying, okay, well, how do I actually make this practical for CEOs? What do they need to do? Can I ask, Murdad, those books were written a number of years ago. What would you write now? bearing in mind the learnings you're going to gain during this period of time? So, Greg, I think if I was going to sit down and write another book, it would have to be about what are the lessons that we need to learn from what, the, what we're going through right now. I, yeah. I think this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity for members of society, for leaders, for everyone else to reflect on the global nature of our biggest problems. Okay. You know, so... We've learned COVID-19 doesn't stop at a border to ask for a visa, you know, and this whole idea, this obsession with national sovereignty mm-hmm. in the face of strikingly global problems is something that in the last four years, we've certainly gone backwards yep. on that. Yep. Uh, and I think there is no way we, we could emerge from this particular period without having some deeper understanding of the kind of global cooperation and collective action it's going to take to address a whole range of issues. And so pandemics are just one, but climate change requires that kind. And, and I think we have to ask ourselves really deeply about the kind of um, behavior we want to see among nations. And as citizens, we'll push our leaders to be a bit more uh, global-minded so that we avoid these catastrophic results, um, as opposed to you know trying to solve these issues or at least make a difference to them before they become catastrophic. There's a big issue here, Matt, that was around trust. And I'm reading a little bit more detail on regards to, say, the World Health Organization. There was a reluctance to call certain countries out mm. early on. Um, and yeah. I guess in some of that now, the response has been, as you say, the rise of nationalism, which could take us back you know, quite a long way as, as, as a group of individuals and people. Yeah. Well, look, Greg, there's no doubt about that. I'm, and I am the last person to argue that the United Nations system is perfect. Okay. Uh, I've worked in the UN system. I worked at the World Bank. Yep. Uh, but uh, I know all the issues, you know, I've experienced firsthand the, uh, the problems in the system. But this is the thing that keeps me optimistic. We went through World War I and at the end of it created the League of Nations, which was woeful. I mean, even Woodrow Wilson, who was one of the architects, you know, America didn't join it. Uh, and uh, and it, but what happened after World War II is the UN was a way better version uh, of global cooperation and global regimes than than the League of Nations was. I think what we're going through may not feel like a world war, but in many ways, I think it is a world war. Uh, every you know, and it's not that we're fighting each other; we're fighting 
you know, what some have called the invisible enemy. But I think um, it is it is that scale in terms of our realization of the forces that threaten us. Uh, and so I'm, I have every hope that out of this will come a better version of the U.N. You know, and I think it's a system that requires reform, no doubt about it. But I think the idea of retreating into um, national sovereignty and pretending the 20th century didn't happen is not a solution to the problems we have as a planet. And is there any particular nations you're admiring and how they're handling coronavirus? Look, I mean, you know, these, I think that that's a bit of a micro thing, what nations have done. But, you know, clearly the testing regimen in South Korea was incredibly effective. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the rules in Germany have been incredibly effective. Japan has done a great job. I think in many ways, you know, you look at New Zealand and um, uh, Justin Arden has done a great job of communicating with their people and being clear and acting fast. Now, the economic consequences of that might be more harsh. And, I you know, we talked before about balancing those two. But I think different countries have, have struck these in different ways. I think one of the other things that will come out of this, I think, will be societies questioning some things that they thought were truths that were not truths. Like I think most of us on the outside who have lived in different kinds of countries and understand healthcare systems, yes. when we look at the American debate about healthcare, we're kind of puzzled by why so many Americans are dead against policies that would be beneficial for them in terms of healthcare. Well, I think an outcome of this crisis is going to show radically different uh, success rates between healthcare systems in the world that are run, you know, in, in more of a universal payer kind of model who did better than the American healthcare model. Maybe that raises some questions about, you know, should we be so adamant against, you know, a healthcare model that's more like the Europeans or the Canadians or the Australian model? Uh, maybe even the issue of guns and, um, uh, and the Second Amendment issues uh, will kind of end up being questioned in more interesting ways uh, after a crisis like this. I don't know, but I'm, I am hopeful that societies will stare into crises and ask themselves some tough questions and usually emerge with a maturity and a selflessness that we don't have during periods of growth. That's a big call. Well, look at your own life. I mean, uh, you know, honestly, like talk to anybody. Yep. When have you had the biggest growth as a person, like in terms of your questioning and emerging as a better person on the other side? It's usually after some form of suffering. True. You know, if someone has yeah. a health episode, you know, a heart attack or something like that, they change their lifestyle. Yep. They have a business failure. They think about what's more important in life. They lose a loved one and they realize they shouldn't work as hard. So I think there are these, you know, wake up calls mm -hmm. that we have in our individual lives. I think what we're experiencing is a collective wake up call, you know, to say maybe we need to think about some of these, uh, the ways we run the world a little bit differently. And if I was going to be sitting at home, zooming into my boss today, which majority of Australians and those listening to us from overseas are, what would I like to hear from the leadership? You know, you're asking a really great question, Greg. I was on a call. I, I won't say what the group was. I don't want to um, cast aspersions on anyone. But I was on a call with a group of about 20 leaders, um, all of them leading amazing organizations. Uh, and the discussion was all around, do you tell the truth to your employees, to your, to your organization about the situation we're going through right now, or do you protect them from the truth? You know, what do you do? Do you, is it going to 
create so much anxiety if you tell them the truth that it's better to water it down, to sugarcoat it, to protect them from it? Or do you go ahead, tell them the whole thing and, and, and th- hope that that empowers them and builds trust? Let me ask you before I tell you what people said on the call. What, would, what do you think someone should do? Should a leader tell the whole truth? or protect the employee. Look, I'm all for more authenticity. And I, in going through our process, addressed our team openly and honestly as best that I could do. But I certainly respect in in, in sometimes you've got to be mindful of the truth and who's and how people are going to be affected by that. But I hope there's as much honesty as, 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 as possible would be my argument. Look, I, I'm with you. Um, I think the bias should be towards telling the full truth. and But in a way that is, educational in a way that builds capacity in a way that gives people comfort that they've got leadership that is thinking through stuff uh, in a compelling way and has their best interest at at heart. Mm -hmm. I was surprised because I thought, look, this might be a 50-50 kind of debate, but 90% of the leaders in that room, there were two people who thought you should, me and one other, who thought you should tell the truth, you know, tell people, share the truth. Wow. Uh, And most people thought, no, protect. And I understand where that comes from. I'm certainly not trying to be judgmental, but mm. I wanted to say that I think times like this do raise these kinds of really interesting leadership questions, Absolutely. right? And yeah. what is the right thing to do as a leader? How much of the, and, it, and it's not a yes, no question anyway, like how much of the truth do you tell them? And how do you do it in a way that allows them to become better crisis managers themselves over time? You know, and uh, to feel confident that they're part of an organization that's looking out for them. They show up at work every day. So I I think that those are the kinds of things that are maybe not spoken during the Zoom, but it's on everyone's mind in the Zoom. What about hope? Can't, Can't you give some truth with an element of hope? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, let's let's say that we're you know, every every organization has had to look at how much revenue it's losing. And then what are the things they're going to, what are the measures they're going to take to try to cover that hole? Okay. And oftentimes you start, you know, they, they start with the most basic ones, which are fire as many people as you can, right? Out of non-essential roles and that sort of thing. I think the stimulus package and um, the job care and all that, I think that is going to cause people not to pull that lever too quickly. Right? Okay. I think government's, government's done a good job of trying to get people to not destroy the economy too quickly. Okay. Uh, I think the the hope comes not from hiding the fact that you might do that, but to be clear with people where the lines are. So, for example, in in our not-for-profit, what I communicated with everyone is that we are not hiring any new people. We put a freeze on a bunch of different things. Uh, so we're going to shelve some of the rapid growth plans. However, people, we're not going to let go of people, but we're going to ask people to do jobs that they may not have been doing before. We're not going to cut their compensation, but there's a chance that if some of the other levers don't work, our last resort will be to decrease the size of the bonus pool. Now, what that does for people, and I had a whole bunch of emails just saying how people were moved by the, the honesty and the integrity behind saying something like that, which is kind of saying, look, from a principal point of view, we want to protect jobs and we're going to have to do whatever we all have to do to make that work. If collectively we can hit certain um, you know, uh, prizes along the way, then we don't have to do our safety net moves. Mm. That sort of, if you want, clear rules of engagement uh, and certainty, I have certainty that my job, at least for the next, you know, six to nine months is safe. 
I might have to, you know, lose a bit of bonus in January, but hopefully not if collectively we we succeed. I think there's hope that comes from that kind of clarity. One of the one of the articles I wrote a while back, this was a McKinsey article, was around um, if you look at what happens during the cycle, we looked at all kinds of different moves companies make during the cycle. And the single most value creating move of any move yeah. during the full cycle mm-hmm. is to acquire during a downturn, you know, in an, in an affected segment. So yes. what does that mean? Well, we have these companies that are fighting for survival, like the airlines. Yes. We have other companies like, say, energy infrastructure operators like APA that are actually in great shape, you know, it, and, um, and so I don't, you know, I think the leaders of those two organizations, you know, an airline and an energy infrastructure operator are going to have very different views on what's going on. Mm-hmm. But certainly the companies that have profiles with more long, long-term contracts and a bit more certainty, this is an amazing opportunity to do some, you know, really value creating moves as well. So I think hope is different in the two organizations. There is a growth to uh, the hope angle in companies that are in good shape. Yep. Very different story. It's very difficult if you're Alan Joyce, how you create hope when you've laid off that many people and you're waiting. I mean, who's flying? You know, so uh, and then you've got Adelaide baggage handlers that are spending. So everything yep. that happens every day scares your customer base even more. It's very difficult to you know talk about Project Sunrise and having nonstop flights to London. Look, just on that and. You are an expert in this field, so I'd be silly not to put you under the under the microscope a little bit here. Um, if we did call Alan and say, "Guess what? I've got Murdad on online with us right here and now." Alan, have you got uh, an hour with us? Um, we're going to sort of look through the balance sheet, look through what's happening. What advice would you know when, he, when we settled it down a bit? What advice would you give, you know, to to organisations which are in somewhat of distress? I am sure that there are tons of people from amazing firms like you know, McKinsey, BCG, Bain, others that are engaging with CEOs to help them think about costs, right? Okay. And they are, they have fine-tuned their programs for cost reduction over the last decade. Yep. And they're scientific about how they do that. What I think I'd rather talk to a CEO about is not that side, which has almost become mechanical in some ways. Um, I think it's important at a time like this to begin to think about what's on the other side. You know, what is the world going to look like? And, you know, are you still going to have the star alliances in one world? Does your partnership with Emirates mean even less? Mm. Um, does, you know, or is there some other uh, partnership, potential consolidation, potential, you know, partnerships that, you know, may emerge on the other side uh, and uh, you need to work on now? I mean, what I'm finding is actually some of the most interesting. Uh, sector shaping moves yeah. happen in climates like this, sometimes because mm-hmm. players are desperate mm-hmm. and in dire straits, and sometimes because they recognize it's an interesting opportunity to think about the problem differently. Uh, so, you know, Qantas has a lot of other interests that are not airline related. Uh, and uh, so, you know, how are those shaping up? What are the opportunities to grow those? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think I would sort of t- turn the conversation that way. I think the challenge we have is that the imperative of the now is just mm. so big yeah. and has so much gravity that I, I don't know where Alan would get five minutes to think about this, you know, but um, other companies that are not as hard hit, there should be room. And I think, you know, if boards uh, are not 
you know, really engaging management in conversations about these kinds of sector-shaping opportunities, then I think that's a problem. Now, here's the quick question for you. You've worked with some outstanding chief execs. What are the competencies which, or what have you noticed about these leaders which stand out, particularly in times like this, i.e. where it's ambiguity every day, everywhere, every minute? Because it takes a lot of, I don't know, certain ability to find, what you say, that opportunity and seize it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've had a chance to see CEOs as human beings as well as leaders, right? And I think one of the things that I admire is, you know, we expect CEOs to be these charismatic people who rally the troops and everything else. I really admire CEOs that are uh, a little bit more unflappable, uh, but both in an up and a down. Like if something good happens, they don't party too hard. If something bad happens, they don't cry, you know? And they managed to say, I think one of the, you know, I, I never forget Tom Gorman, who used to run Brambles, yes. used to always quote to me uh, from Mike Tyson, that everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> and, and which is a great quote. And it's so typically Tom. But the thing about it that I loved was this idea that he had an expectation that he's in the ring and he's going to get punched, mm. you know, and yet Tom had the ability um, to you know, no matter what was going on, to stay calm, think through it, look at the options. And he wasn't afraid to have uh, people in the room who thought differently uh, and ended up, you know, getting to some pretty good answers. You know, I think that's always really admirable to see something like that. Uh, Craig Meller at AMP was the same. Guillaume Swiggers at Deloitte was the same. You know, so there have been these really amazing folks who, in very difficult circumstances, don't lose their cool. They disaggregate the problem. They think about it. They create some space to be creative. And then when they act, they act boldly. They talk to people. They bring the people on the journey and so on. I admire that very much. How difficult is it to do all that in, a, um, in an ASX listed or any listed environment, bearing in mind you've got boards, you've got other, uh, other external stakeholders as well? Look, Greg, there's no doubt it's a very difficult time. Mm. And, and one of the things you know, we think about is, how are directors going to feel when they have to sign off on accounts in the next few, you know, few months from now, uh, in this environment, you know, so the pressure is going to be on. And I think, yeah. you know, some of the directors who find themselves on multiple boards, you maybe convinced yourself you were only going to work a day a month on this company. And suddenly it's taking, you know, six to eight days a month, uh, to go through stuff. And you've got three of them or mm. four of them, That's right. some, you know, and you know, there's not enough days in the month suddenly. So I think it's very, very, very difficult. This is where private equity definitely has an advantage over, over being listed. I think the only comfort, I think, for a lot of companies in this is that it's happening to so many at the same time, and everyone's in the same boat. And one of the things about um, funds and listed entities and so on is peer-to-peer comparisons. You know, So if something has hit an entire sector, an entire economy, uh, I think there's a lot more if you want, um, at least understanding. I'm not saying that, you know, people won't take advantage of low share prices and, you know, exit and things like that. But I think people, people's expectations of management changes. And I think we're going to see that, for example, look at the banks. Imagine the pressure the banks are under and, you know, they still are under obligations to deal with some of the compliance things that came out of the Royal Commission. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know what? I don't think you can necessarily expect them 
fairly in a situation like this to push incredibly hard on compliance stuff when they're trying to save jobs and keep the economy from closing and get SMEs to work. And so, you know, it's just, you can't have your line one, two, and three risk people and outside audit people and everyone else going through every form to make, it's just, it is unreasonable. And so there will have to be, I think, some shifts from the government side to allow uh, people to function given the reality of our current environment in ways that are, you know, and, and some things that are important, but not, you know, absolutely mission critical to our survival. <laughs> yeah, we have to sort of, you know, accept that some of those things might be pushed out six months or 12 months. During your career, Murdad, has there been any sort of familiarities uh, through a down cycle that you've been through that would be comparable to this at all? Or is this all really, as the press keep putting out there, unprecedented? I think this one's unprecedented. I, I don't think this, I think the GFC was, a, you know, it was a, it was a nasty thing, but it was a lot easier than this. Uh, and uh, I think it's like, because it's a double whammy, in some ways it's a triple whammy we're going through because you also have this oil price battle going on, which really clouds uh, a whole, a number of sectors of the economy as well. But that plus the COVID plus, you know, the broad economic slowdown, it's really difficult. Uh, to add all that together. And I think certain sectors are going to be hit, obviously, way harder than other ones. Uh, you know, you mentioned Zoom before. You look at the share price of Zoom, you know, people mm. who invested in it last year are doing very well. Yes. Uh, so, so it's not like it's uniform and everything is going to, to pot, but I think uh, it, is, it is an incredibly difficult thing. I think the, uh, the winners here are going to be the ones that had managed to keep some cash yep. or have businesses that continue to you know, produce. Uh, and they're going to have some tremendous opportunities, uh, not just for acquisitions, but you know, really industry redefining moves. Uh, I think one of the groups that suffers the most right now, we haven't talked about a lot, mm -hmm. but you know, ventures, like so technology ventures, startups, these, you know, these yep. are companies where their entire revenue plan disappears for many of them. Right. Yes. Uh, and yet they've got really interesting platforms or products. I think one of the things we're going to see is this is an amazing time for larger companies to buy uh, distressed ventures because you're, you're buying growth platforms pennies on the dollar. Uh, so I think we'll see. But I mean, it may not be top of mind for people today because you've got to deal with the people issues. You've got to, you know, investors, you've got all kinds of things that are more important. But over the course of this year, when some of this other stuff becomes a bit more normal day-to-day -day stuff, yep. I guarantee you're going to see some very interesting moves by the shrewdest CEOs that are going to fortify the growth platforms for the next five years. And so how do I actually go about that from a micro point of view, Murdad, in the sense that I'm the CEO, and as you just said to me a few minutes ago, I maybe not have told everybody the truth, but I will probably bring in an inner circle. How do I go about then saying, well, look, actually we have an opportunity that we're never going to get for the next hundred years. What team do I form and where do these people come from? Well, you know, so as you said, I mean, we said before about telling the truth, that doesn't mean saying everything. Like what I'm, I still think that there are some, let's say speculative growth initiatives mm -hmm. that if you shared would just give people false hope and sometimes actually destroy value because you're letting the confidentiality out. So yeah. I think for things that are game changing moves, most CEOs typically have a small team. Um, and it's, you know, maybe two to three people on the inside. Mm -hmm. And usually there's one or two trusted ad advisors on the outside. And the advisor is typically one who is a little bit more strategic 
and can think in terms of five to 10 year value creation you know, trajectories, as well as someone who's a bit more transactional oriented, like an investment banker who's trusted. Uh, and it's the combination of that, like usually a group of about five, uh, CEO plus two internal plus two external, that becomes essentially the group that imagines what some of the, you know, really game-changing moves could be. Uh, and, you know, if, if the opportunity arises to go and talk to the others and make something happen, then you move fast. But I've seen deals in, in these times done incredibly quickly, like things that normally might take nine months to 12 months to get across the line. I've seen people get across the line in two to three months. Like at least the lion's share of the deal and the intention and everything else, even if the legals take a while to catch up. And is the alchemy of growth as a, as a firm? Are you, are you busy at the moment getting phone calls for, to think down this path? <laughs> you know what? We are very busy. Um, we uh, have been, I think, and it's interesting, our clients, uh, we have both. We have organizations that are uh, in deep strife and okay. uh, looking at, you know, massive cost cutting and things. We don't do that kind of work. We don't do cost cutting work. We, we don't, you know, it's not our kettle of fish, but, yeah. you know, there are lots of other firms that do. And so some of our clients would shelve some of their growth plans, but then we have other ones that are in really great shape and um, understand the, the strategic advantage that can come out of the next six months. And that's where we're pretty full on. And, and Murdad, are, are people too quick to shelve growth plans? Well, sometimes they don't have a choice. Right. Yeah, I mean, okay. one of the principles behind the alchemy of growth was this idea of earning the right to grow. Yes. And what we meant by that was this idea that your Horizon One core business has to generate the earnings that you need to satisfy shareholder expectations and then and then some. And it's the then some part that is used to invest in growth. Now, what happens is if the earnings um, from the, the core go down because of the economic slowdown, the natural reaction is to say, well, we, we need to wait until we re-earn the right to grow and we put growth initiatives on hold. The breakthrough in that, Greg, comes if people realize that there may be other ownership structures, sources of funding, ways of uh, putting deals together that doesn't have to be done necessarily uh, with your, your own earnings. And it might okay. be that you create a, you know, a lot of optionality by putting certain things together. And then when you've got a little bit more capital, you buy in maybe at a bit of a higher price uh, or something else. So, but but I think just because you don't have access to internal capital does not mean you can't uh, line up and act on value-creating big moves that could uh, be incredibly uh, important in the next four to five years. Okay. Your books forced a lot of chief execs to start, I think, asking some pretty tough questions on themselves and on their staff. Did you find before you wrote those books there was enough critical thinking from the chief execs in Australia? Well, so I, I didn't move until you know I didn't move to Australia until '98. Yeah. Um, so I married an Australian in 1994. My wife Roya. We moved here in '98, uh, and so the, the alchemy was written before that. Um, I didn't have a huge amount of interaction with CEOs there. I think if you ask, you know, in other parts of the world where I work, I think there was a lot of create. I think there was critical thinking. I don't think. Uh, I think you can't really be uh, an effective leader unless you do question things. You know, so someone who constantly believes he is right uh, hates to be challenged with any form of truth. Uh, they get into leadership positions sometimes, and we can see a few. It doesn't mean that they're effective and you know leaders that that are going to leave the place better than they found it. 
Mm-hmm. And so I found most of the CEOs that I work with over the years are actually incredibly good at that. Um, I think it, the part which is a bit harder is thinking beyond natural boundaries. And so we used to talk about, you know, Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, how do you think about what Coca-Cola's market share is? And Ted Levitt, who wrote a classic HBR article, really got people to think about this idea of market definition. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of operations, Coca-Cola needs to think about its market share relative to Pepsi, yes. right? So, you know, am I over 50%, let's say, or whatever. Yep. But when you're thinking about growth, if you think about 50% as your market share or 60%, you're not leaving a lot of room to think about growth. So if you think about the market more broadly and you say, well, what's my share of bladder? Well, Coke might have 1% share of bladder because now you're competing against water, tea. And you actually see Coke and Pepsi have gone into a lot of these other liquid refreshment occasions. So part of what we try to do uh, is, you know, this this is where I think CEOs, sometimes it's a bit more difficult because of the pressure of the day-to-day and the gravity of Horizon One, but try to lift them, at least for the purposes of thinking about growth strategy, to think about markets a little bit more broadly. And that doesn't mean that you suddenly you know, go off into a new space where you've got no relevant capabilities and you just step out into the unknown, that, that's foolhardy. But at least you think about, I've got some great capabilities and assets and relationships. How can I leverage them into other growth opportunities where I've got a right to play? Uh, and that, I think, is harder to do. And of the CEOs that you've advised closely who've actually achieved high levels of growth, was there any particular characteristics? I know you said the humble side a little bit earlier or balanced about partying all night long after a good win or sobriety in the regards to if it's a, uh, negative news. What other core competencies or core things would you sort of like to bring to the table and share with us today? Look, I think one of the interesting things I've learned over the past you know, 25 years is um, the capacity of a CEO to absorb new thinking, new ideas, by far outstrips the organization's ability to implement them, right? Okay, okay. And so the biggest challenge I think a lot of CEOs have is how do you not get too far ahead of your organization? And the general rule of thumb, I mean, there's two that come to my mind that I think are reasonably important. The first one is you can really get one big idea into the organization every year. So what do I mean by a big idea? You know, if you're changing something about the culture, if you've got a new growth path, if you've made an acquisition. You know, you can have lots of little things, but only one really major thing. And this idea, I've seen like some CEOs that had like strategies with 18 bullet points. You know, well, you better know which of those 18 is really your most important. And so I think that's the first thing is you might have like a bunch of secondary things, but be super clear what the one most important theme is this year. Mm-hmm. And I think the second thing about it is, is the, uh, there was a CEO of a bank in the US that told me this, and I've never forgotten it. He said, Mayor Dad, you know, sometimes I go and I give the speech that I've given 30 times, and I think people must be completely sick of hearing it. And someone will come up and say that I just, you know, I now get it. Thank you so much. And I'm always shocked about how often I have to repeat things until a lot of people get it. And, and I think it's not just that people don't hear. I know people have different learning styles and hearing styles and everything else. But, but the idea is that sometimes you can't stick these things. You can't stick the landing the first time. And it takes people a number of times and maybe you explaining it six different ways for them to actually get it. So I think the combination of the two for me is pick that one big thing every year that is, you know, the main 
hole in this tent uh, and then really over communicate on it and then think about what you want to do next year. And I think one of the things I noticed with some of the most successful CEOs is that, is that ability not to get too far ahead. I mean, in your own time, yes, but don't just flood the organization with whatever your latest thought the jour is. And what's your thoughts in regards to these people and their ability to pick high quality team members? <laughs> that's a tough question. You know, that's, now we're going into your territory, my friend. <laughs> um, and you're incredibly good at doing that. Uh, I think I can tell you what I've noticed is that people have a lot of false positives, a lot more than you'd think, <laughs> you know, and it always surprised me why, like, why is it that you put a team together and then there's just one or two elements that don't quite fit? Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know the reason to that. I'm sure you have a better understanding of that, but what I've taken away from it is don't stick with a bad fit for too long, mm-hmm. you know? And I think being able to, say that, okay, I, I was putting a team together. I really thought this person would be able to fill this role, but for whatever reason, chemistry, skills, or whatever it is, it doesn't work. You can't stay with it too long. You really kind of compromise uh, the progress of the organization if you keep conflict or um, poor team play at the top. Fair point. Now, I'm going to throw you in the deep end while I'm on this role. Boards in Australia, and you've already mentioned it a bit earlier, the the concern you had with, say, the banks and the government regarding compliance. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion around boards in Australia being heavily focused on compliance. Where do you see the level of discussion you know, from your one-on-ones with chief execs and the impact on their, that they're having with, with boards? Has it been a handbrake? Has it been supportive? What, what do you see? Or what do you see coming out of this? Well, look, it, 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 it would, that would have been a tough question if there was no... COVID-19 or economic slowdown. Right? <laughs> now, throw that into the mix. It's really hard to crystal ball on this one. Yep. But let me say this. I think that I understand uh, extremely, and I'm very sympathetic with why there was a need to push the compliance stuff, right? There was clear failures on the part of some organizations to allow things to happen that shouldn't have happened. Fair enough. Right. I'm not being an apologist in any way for that. However, I think to impose processes that are absolutely crippling on some organizations may be to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And, uh, and I think it becomes fair to at least ask that question. You know, is the trade-off the right trade-off from a macro point of view? Uh, if you look at how much shareholder value got transferred, from corporates to, let's say, law firms and consultants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because uh, of massive amounts of work to act on the compliance stuff. Now, are we going to get a better answer? Hopefully, because I think people are going to get more efficient. They're going to understand the processes. They'll rethink them. They'll ask themselves, which of these are really adding value? Uh, which of the, you know, we understand what we need to protect against. Uh, and I think they'll get better at it. But I think the value of what we went through in the past few years was the importance of boards and CEOs remembering how important trust is, right? And that that is not something that can be taken for granted. And it's something, reputation and trust is something that could be lost very quickly. And I think the place where that shows up is in the way people make decisions. Now, I think boards and management are making different decisions at the board level. Obviously, the challenge is, how do you drive that in the line? And when you've got someone who's, say, in a remote office, 
you know, central New South Wales, and they have to make a decision. How do they act ethically and, um, and not allow, let's say, KPIs to push them into bad decisions? I think that cultural change stuff is going to take a while. It's very difficult to do. And I'm not sure that, you know, cumbersome processes necessarily do that. I think that those, the type of process work people are doing on compliance is not as important as the cultural work that needs to be done on trust and what that means and how, why, it's, why it's important. And, and I think that is, in some organizations, I think it's happening in a big way. I think if you look at CBA, for example, yes. they really engaged in looking at trust and thinking about what that means, it, you know, really different from the top by Catherine, Matt Coleman and others. Yep. So I think, you know, that, that sort of recognition that trust is critical, I think that's the most important. If I'm sitting in a private equity firm, am I raving my hands with glee? <laughs> I bet you some of them are, especially if they're cashed up. If they've got funds, uh, they're going to be some great opportunities. I think there's a timing question about when you act. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, uh, my guess is that some of them are actually going to rue the day they make, make some, you know, tough, distressed acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think is that I think it goes back to the trust thing, goes back. A lot of businesses are more than just the physical assets. It's, you know, the people matter. You know, the workers matter. And if workers get a sense that new owners really, you know, were bloodthirsty and savage and greedy, I think you lose the opportunity to do some special things. So I think there's no doubt PE is going to have a field day in the next, you know, three to four years, um, you know, building value out of, you know, some of the things that are falling apart. However, I hope they do it in a way that's more compassionate and more sensitive to what people and companies are going through. And they recognize that actually, in many cases, the people are the most important assets and they need to take them along in a trusted way. You're the growth expert. What's the first signs that we're going to be coming out of this these dark days? You're talking about the economic side or the, the, the all, economic yeah, side? Yeah, all the above, actually. Look, I mean, I think the health numbers will be a lot easier to die, you know, to, to analyze uh, than the economy numbers, okay. you know, in the sense that, I mean, clearly COVID-19 is a bit of a challenge because of the 14 day lag, right? Yep. Yep. So it's very difficult when you're making policy today based on numbers from two weeks ago, but you know, there's, you can actually now kind of judge curves. You can try to, you know, and I think even two weeks is not that long. So death rates, recovery rates, number of infections, there's really good statistics that are going to give us a sense of what's happening by geography. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, the, you know, whether we're coming out of this in three months, six months, nine months, a year, maybe 18, there's an end point to it because a vaccine at some point will end it, right? But how long it takes, I think on the health side, will be really easy to track, um, relatively speaking. On the economic side, much harder because it's not just about, you know, you, when you've got subsidies, you don't know what would happen with true price signals. Uh, and so we don't know what the carrying capacity of the economy is in terms of jobs. You know, and if certain subsidies went away, if certain benefits went away, you know, if the world continues, it, it's just hard. And I think the other thing that is an, is an analogy from nature, which I think, you know, applies to business ecosystems as well, which is that, uh, you know, if you look at what it costs to prevent damage in an ecosystem, 
Uh, for every dollar you spend on prevention, if things go bad, you have to spend $10 on repair. Is that right? Uh, and okay. so, yeah, it's like a one to 10 relationship. Right. And I think it's the same economically in the sense that the cost of restarting an economy after a slowdown is yeah. massive. Yeah. Right. And so, and it'll be difficult. It'll be much more difficult to see that than the health side. But I think, look, I think clearly if the health stuff gets fixed, and there's an answer in terms of the vaccine or the flattening the curve is working, you're going to see the economic response be faster than if it doesn't. So you think that companies, again, based on what you just said a minute ago, we actually can come out at a reasonable pace? Uh, again, you have to be granular about this. It depends yep. which sector, which yep. company. Okay. Uh, I think certain companies are going to come out way stronger. Uh, and I think, you know, you look at what's happening to online education. Uh, stocks. Yep. You know, so there are some that are, have gotten a bit of a bump from the isolation and so on. And then there are others like Qantas, for example, or Virgin, where it's just much, you know, it's it's the, the hit is unbelievable. Even with layoffs, the pressure on cash flows, you know, you have to count. And um, so I think it's not clear that every company will come out on the other end, but certainly some will come out much stronger. And are we going to be working differently, Murdad? Oh, yeah, everyone's talking about we may, wow. we may be working more at home as opposed to the office. <laughs> but, and, but the flip you side to that, the office is a social environment. So I'd be, I'd be interested yeah. in your point of view on this because I know a lot of people keep pushing that we're going to be working from home. But I'm a big believer yeah. it's good to go to work to build a, you know, a healthy culture and enjoy life as well. Yeah, look, I think you're going to see – we certainly will work differently. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think it's been interesting talking to some chairman. There was one chairman who this, this week told me, we you know having done the first board meeting by Zoom. Yes. And uh, like, wow, you know, we should really think about having half our board meetings by Zoom. Now, I don't think anyone's going to think about this idea of working from home in a corner of your bedroom as a sustainable thing, you know, for most people. So, uh, you know, that's, I don't think that's going to happen. However, I think people will um, really be much more balanced. And there, you know, think about how many trips, Greg, in your life, you know, are not necessarily as important for you to be there in person. You've had to get on a plane and go. Agreed. You know, that yep. you're doing today with Zoom. I think people are going to be a little bit more stringent in asking, like stress testing things. Do I really need to do this? Like this meeting is going to cost us $98,000. Correct. <laughs> Should we really do this? Yeah. I mean, is that meeting, is it worth $98,000 for us to be in person? Yep. I think people will ask stuff like that. You know, and uh, I think people will be a little bit more tough in terms of um, the standards they'll apply to to what they do in person, what they do by video. But we'll certainly be a lot more video oriented uh, than we have been. And do you think there's going to be a fair amount of change in executive leadership? I know that's my I know that's my bag, but what do you think? Because it is a different you know it's a, it is a different game we're in now. Look, I think you know. I mean, first of all, let's go back to the human side, right? Yeah. It is not easy to be in that chair. No. And I think I have nothing but compassion, empathy, solidarity, respect for leaders who are sitting there trying to work through this. And I think for some of them, there's no doubt the personal toll is huge. Yes. Uh, and they're making the sacrifices, but I think they're going to get to the other side and actually, and some of them may not even get to the other side, but they're going to really question how much longer they want to do some of this. Mm. So I do think that you will have some generational changes, like some passing of the batons after, and not because, 
you know, people do a bad job or something, just that people will be exhausted and uh, they will try to think about what else life is about. I think we will see some of that. Yes. Do you mind if I change tack and ask you, what is High Resolve? So High Resolve is a, a not-for-profit social venture that my wife Roy and I set up about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we design and deliver uh, immersive, engaging learning experiences to young people around um, citizenship. So we talked about these kind of global competencies and 21st century skills. Yep. We do that. And we've worked with you know, over 600 schools in Australia. We've worked with about 350,000 young people uh, and growing now into U.S., Canada, Mexico, Brazil, China, Armenia, <laughs> a lot of other countries. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's it's a it's this not for profit we created out of Australia, which is starting to have a global impact on citizenship education. And what are you looking to to see come out of the, the young kids? What, what are you trying to inspire? At the heart of it, we go back to what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, yep. Greg, which is uh, getting people to act in the long-term collective interest. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it that you could put young people through that gets them to be more likely to act in the long-term collective interest? And so what we've done is we've worked a lot uh, from a learning science point of view, a gentleman called Broer Saxberg, who's the, uh, got the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative uh, over the years. Uh, and we think that the way you get this kind of transformation in young people is they have to have a peak experience. And so we design really engaging, immersive workshops, which we run in schools, groups of 60 kids, you know, two hours. Uh, and, uh, and then that's supplemented by work teachers do in the classroom, which is what we call repeated practice, which gets their learning to go into long-term memory. And then they do some real-world project-based learning so that they get the confidence to take what they've learned and apply it in a day-to-day situation. So what we do with schools is we design uh, thematic, what we call strings for every grade. So year seven, year eight, year nine, year 10. And it might be that you know, we work in year seven on identity and purpose. So young kids would have experiences that get them to think about, well, who am I? And they have to sort of walk away getting a sense that we're actually a single human race, but, but that I have a particular unique diversity I can be proud of. You know? And we get them to, to also understand how to have more of an independent thinking approach to when that, um, that truth is attacked. Uh, we also then might say in grade eight, work on social justice and social advocacy. Mm-hmm. And kids might make videos. We call it videos for change, one-minute videos on social themes where they advocate for what might make a better society. They learn how to drive collective action in year nine. And how do you get my friends and family to get engaged in various um, things to make our community a better place. Uh, and then finally, in year 10, typically they look back and ask, how can I be a better version of myself? Uh, and what about my personal impact on the planet? How do I work better with others? What is it that I want to become? So really, in many ways, what we're doing is complementing the core curriculum of education with a more well-rounded set of things that young people need to learn about their role in society and, and how they um, make society a better place. And I think it's particularly important in a time like this, because um, we're looking at a world that is giving us one of the, this, I called it a once in a generation teachable moment, you know? And so there's a chance for young people to really reflect on what's going on. How did we get here? How could it have been better? How could societies make these kind of ethical choices differently? Um, you know, in, how do you decide who deserves a ventilator and who doesn't? Yeah, right. uh, and um, I think there's a really 
incredible opportunity, not just to, you know, we have kids at home, learn a bit of math and English and carry on as though nothing's different, but saying, okay, well, that stuff's important, but really, there is something big happening here, and there's a really important education moment, not just for kids, but, you know, for young adults and adults to reflect and to think about, what do I want to learn from this? How can we make sure things like this don't happen? How do you measure success in that? Look, at the end of the day, it, the easiest way is that schools are picking it up and we're growing. You know, we, until the virus, we were doubling every year. And so that's an indication that you're doing something right. Yeah. right? Um, uh, I think the, we, we have a whole set of different ways of measuring what students are learning, what changes they're making. But really, the most exciting thing for me is we have had a project funded out of the U.S. called the Future of Assessment. And what we've been building is a way of measuring the choices students make along their high school years uh, and using that to figure out to what extent they're displaying a sense of collective identity or a sense of independent thinking and so on. Uh, and being able to not so much give them a grade for whether they become a good human, but to give a school a sense of, look, your grade eight cohort this year is not as strong in independent thinking as the one last year. You know, and so that the school can make interventions during the school year to ensure that they're building the capacity of, of their students along the way. And do you see a lot of difference between the young people compared to us? Again, you sort of have both types, right? You've got uh, what we've seen with backpackers and people who've kind of disregarded um, the situation and the impact on the, the public. Yeah, true. But you also see, like, you know, if you look at one of the big things out of 2019, Yep. was that the voice of young people matters. Well, mm. I'm not just talking about Greta Thunberg, although she's amazing, mm. but look at all the young people around the world who picked up and started speaking. And I think one of the things that became apparent was that young people have a moral legitimacy that other people don't because they represent the future. You know, So when a young person gets up, it's easy for some political leaders to laugh at them or put them down or critique them but what they're really doing is they're critiquing future generations. They're having a conversation with the future. And, uh, and I think that the power of young people to hold up uh, that voice and to challenge is one of the, the big things that we learned in 2019. And we're going to see in a big way, I think, in the 20s. High resolves. Do the governments of Australia support in any, in any manner? Very much. We're incredibly grateful to um, Senator Rustin, the Department of Social Services, uh, they saw the value in the program, and uh, we were primarily in the metro areas of Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Uh, thanks to the Department of Social Services, we've been growing and have now set up hubs. We uh, have in Newcastle, in Wollongong, in the Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, far north Queensland, uh, in Ballarat, and I think uh, Wodonga, a number of other places. So I think the government's been great. I think right now um, they're also very concerned about what does it mean to be a citizen during a crisis? If you look at how people reacted during the bushfires, how people yeah. are reacting now, I think people are realizing that there is a strategic advantage for countries that do citizenship education. Yes. There's no doubt. You know, Japan, South Korea, and Germany benefited from a strong citizenship education you know, uh, uh, sense in the country. Mm -hmm. And I think if we are serious about, you know, if we believe there's going to be more crises, whether it's extreme weather events, climate events, or whether, you know, there's pandemics, whatever, the ability of a society to pull through in a cohesive, coherent way depends on whether or not we engage in education in, in citizenship. 
And that is, I think, what the Australian government's beginning to realize is you know, it's quite important. And the, the Department of Social Services grant uh, was uh, was a good start for us. And we hope to do more, and certainly to go to WA and South Australia and Tasmania and Northern Territory, ACT, other places. Can I ask you, Murdad, from all your experience, what is and how is the best way to communicate? That's what you're, what you're talking about, communicating to influence an outcome, as you say, whether it's societal or it's the... Uh, the ASX 100, or it's the SME down the road. How does a leader communicate effectively? Stories. Ah, talk us it's through. Come on. All about stories. Really? Really. I mean, look, you can make charts. You know, people get up, they think it's about the PowerPoint. Look at TED Talks. It's all about storytelling, uh, I think. Uh, and I think you, you know, I say that not flippantly. Mm. It's actually really, really hard to tell a good, you know, story. And I don't mean like an anecdote in the middle of your speech. I mean that your whole communication, the narrative, is a story, you know? And so stories are important because leaders use stories to make sense of what's going on in the world for people. Right. You know, so they have this responsibility to say, I see this scary, difficult context. I see what's going on. And I'm going to take you from that dark world the one that is a bit more hopeful and makes sense, you know, and somehow in that story, you're going to emerge on the other side feeling more empowered. So I think being able to create narratives that really engage people at a deep level is critical. And in saying that, from your experience, and you tell the story, is it then difficult to bring people along a change agenda? You know, absolutely. I mean, you know how difficult it is when you're trying to place a role to think about, you know, how how well someone could actually lead change, um, whether it's in their function or in the entire organization or even on a board. I think part of the skill and the art, um, not the science as much, but the art in putting narratives together is finding ways for people to connect to it. Uh, and sometimes it's you know, having people be able to see their own fingerprints on it. Sometimes connecting with themes that they may be too afraid to voice. Uh, but I think being able to craft compelling storylines is really, really important. We talked about Tom Gorman before, because hmm. I don't want to make it sound like this is all about, you know, COVID. Look at Tom when he took over Brambles. Yeah. Um, you know, he was there for nine years, I think. And his first year, I think the previous year, Brambles had been rated as the worst of the ASX 50 in terms of the strategic clarity of where they were going. Yes. And the next year, after the first year of Tom being in the chair, Brambles was rated number one. They went from 50th to first in terms of the strategic clarity of what they were saying. Well, Tom did something right in terms of being able to tell a story that his people and the market could understand about the journey that that organization was on. And, uh, and it convinced people that it made sense and that I want to go on that journey. Murdad, you've had a fascinating career and obviously um, you, you see things that other people can't see. But looking back at young Murdad, what advice would you give him now? Uh, you know, the, there's a Billy Joel song that comes to mind. It's called Vienna Waits for You. And, you know, the first line is, you know, slow down, you crazy child. <laughs> You're so ambitious for a juvenile. I, I, look, I think the thing I would tell my younger self is 
to just slow down. And I mean, everything I'm learning is going to be useful in my life, but don't rush so much. And, uh, and I think in my mid fifties, I, I see how, uh, I think there were so many moments that I could have savored a bit more, relished a bit more. And maybe it was because of my upbringing and the importance that, you know, we placed on education and everything else as immigrants that, you know, you, you didn't allow as much of that to take up your life. Um, but I think that, you know, the young people today are a lot more balanced on that front and they're striking their trade-offs between educating themselves and building their skills, uh, with, um, you know, experiencing some of the beautiful things this world has to offer, even during a crisis, you know, and, um, I think that would be, that would be the thing for me. Vienna waits for you. On that, Murdad, I can't say thank you enough. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. My pleasure, Greg. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You've been listening to No Limitations.